Job chapter 30, we're going to read the first 15 verses. As Job continues his speech, remember the speech that began in chapter 26, chapter 20, continued in chapter 27, 28, 29, and now in verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 1, it says, but now they mock at me, men younger than I, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. Indeed, what profit is the strength of their hands to me? Their vigorous perished. They are gaunt from want and famine, fleeing late into the wilderness, desolate and waste, who pluck mallow by the bushes and broom tree roots for their food. They were driven out from among men. They shouted at them as a thief. They had to live in the clefts of the valleys and caves of the earth and the rocks among the bushes they brayed under the nettles they nestled. They were sons of fools, yes, sons of vile men. They were scourged from the land. And now I'm their taunting song. Yes, I am their byword. They abhor me. They keep far from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face because he has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me. They have cast off restraint before me. At my right hand, the rabble arises. They push away my feet. It's an idiomatic expression, which means they tripped me up. And they raise against me their ways of destruction. They break up the path. They promote my calamity. They have no helper. They come as broad breakers under the ruinous storm. They roll away. Terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my honor as the wind. And my prosperity is passed like a, like a cloud. Wiersbe's outline is really helpful. In the previous chapter, Job talked about life before the incident. Remember in chapter 29, he talked about life before the crisis and the catastrophe occurred. Life before the storms came. Life before they stole all of his property. Life before all of his children died. Life before his health was ruined and how wonderful life was. But now is the contrast. It's as if Job is on that ruinous trash heap, scraping his wounds and remembering what his life used to be like. And then all of a sudden he remembers, well, wait a minute. This is the life I have right now. This is the circumstances that I find myself in. The joy of chapter 29 becomes the complaint of chapter 30. And there are five specific complaints. I have no respect in verses 1 through 15. I have no blessing in verses 16 through 23. I have no help in verses 24 and 5. I have no future, verses 26 and 28. I have no ministry, verses 29 through 31. And when we contrast what's happening in verse 30 with chapter 29, remember Job described a life prior to the trial of honor and respect in verses 7 through 11. A life marked by blessing in, in verses 2 through 6. A, a life of, of, of abundant life in verses 12 through 17. A healthy and a hope-filled future in verses 18 through 20. An effective ministry in verses 21 through 25. And he's saying all of that, all of that has changed. It's Job's life turned upside down. And many of you can relate when your life has been turned upside down. When a husband or a wife leaves, when a child dies or, or a difficulty takes place, or you're involved in a car accident and your whole world is different. Everything has changed. Everything is different. Job was at the very, very top, and now he's at the very, very bottom. He was once the most respected man in his world, and he becomes the most disrespected man, the most despised and mocked man. We have incidents like that that take place every week. 
For those of you who follow the the news and you read the stories about the owner of the LA Clippers and you say, okay, he's a billionaire. He owns an NBA team. And then all of a sudden someone secretly um, records racist, disgusting comments. It becomes a matter of common knowledge. He's fined two and a half million dollars and he is put on not just time out from his team, but he cannot attend any NBA team, any game, anywhere, at any time. But see, here's the difference. He's a billionaire and a a professional owner, but he isn't a righteous person by any stretch of the imagination. He was a malignant, wicked, racist, disgusting human being before all of this happened. Job was exactly the opposite. He was a righteous, good, decent person. People in pain, if you've ever had pain in your life, you want the pain to go away. People who are hurt, they want to return to the place of health. And people in pain sometimes complain, don't they? I grew up in a world where my father, my mother, my grandfather, my grandmother, without exception, each and every close relative in my family would say, stop complaining. Don't complain. Who hasn't heard grandma say, if you pray for rain, don't grumble about the mud. The truth is rain comes and with rain comes. Yeah, you know the song. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. You know that. I heard the story of a man in a monastery who was given the opportunity to say two words every five years. He went into the monastery. He had to take a vow of silence, except for every five years he could say two words. After the first five years, he said, food, bad. And then another five years went by. And he said, bed, hard. And then another five years went by, 15 years in all. And finally he said, I quit. And the leaders responded, we're not surprised. All you've done is complain ever since you got here. It just seems like complaint. I think I prefer the word groan. We all know people in pain and we all know people who have faced problems and enduring pain and and heavy burdens. And then when all of a sudden, again, I I want you to, to just, again, remind yourself of who Job is and what he's doing. Where he's come from and where he is. And remember, the explanation is still not coming. Why is this all happening to me? And in verse 1, he says, But now they mock at me, men younger than I, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. In other words, he's saying that the young people, there's a, there's a cultural, a social um, um, disrespect, if you will, whose fathers I disdain to put Uh, with my dogs. In other words, these are the sons of men that I wouldn't even allow to watch my dog. The people who once admired and respected Job now despise him, reject him, mock him, spit in his face, we find out in verses 9 and 10. And what makes matters worse, the people who mock and despise Job, He likens to donkeys wandering in the wilderness in verse 8. Think about a group of people in the lowest state in a particular culture or society. Imagine you're a homeless person and you're standing holding up a board and all of the other homeless people come up to you and they start mocking you and making fun of you. He is at the lowest of the low circumstance. I think of the Dalit in India who are outcasts. These are a group of people who are only allowed 
to clean out sewers and remove waste. In India, if you are born poor, you remain poor for the rest of your life. If you are born rich, you remain rich for the rest of your life. There was a time when Job was the greatest, the richest, most admired person. And now he's the object of ridicule and scorn. And so when Job says, whose fathers I disdain to put with my dogs, remember, he's talking about despicable people, low people, some a group of people that other people would characterize as being low life. And in verse 2, he says, Indeed, what profit is the strength of their hands to me? Their vigor has perished. They are gaunt from want and famine. He's describing the people who are making fun of him. These are people who are also poor, who are also broken, who are also in difficulty. That's what the point that he's making. Fleeing late into the wilderness, desolate and waste, who pluck mallow by the bushes and broom trees, broom roots for their food. He's describing human beings who go out into the wilderness foraging for food. It's very, very difficult for us to understand, but imagine you're in the middle of nowhere and you have to dig up roots, you have to dig up plants, you have to eat beetles or bugs, you just have to figure out some way to find some nourishment to put in your mouth so that you can stay alive. They were driven out from among men. They shouted shouted at them as a thief. In other words, these are the lowest, most despicable, um, bottom rung of society that people, when they show up at at Starbucks, you see the manager go, get out of here. What are you doing here? You don't belong here. Verse 5, they're driven out from among men. They shouted at them as a a thief. Verse 6, they had to live in the clefts of the valleys, in the caves of the earth, in the rocks. These are homeless people. These aren't people who have a a place to live. They don't even have a P.O. box. These are people who are living in the most difficult circumstance that life has to offer but they're also the people who are making fun of Job. In verse 7, it says, Among the bushes they brayed. Under the nettles they nestled. And so when Job uses that verb, braid, he's using a specific word that describes a donkey's voice. What does that mean? Job's tormentors are not only poor, they are not only homeless, they are not only indigent, but they act more like animals than they do like human beings. They were sons of fools, it says in verse 8. That means these are the children of people who are void of judgment. When he says that they're sons of fools, this doesn't mean stupid people. When the Bible uses the word fool, It's actually not an intellectual judgment what it is. It's a moral judgment about people, not who so much don't know right from wrong, but who who have no moral sense. There's no moral bearing. Yes, sons of vile men, they were scourged from the land. And now I am their taunting song. Yes, I am their byword. They abhor me. They keep far from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face because he has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me. They have cast off restraint from before me. Here's what Job is doing. He's using words and phrases that stress a lack of respect and total humiliation. He feels like the lowest of the low. He feels like the outcast of the outcast. In chapter 29, verse 20, Job said, my glory is fresh within me and my bow is renewed in my hand. Remember when he was thinking about the good old days and when he was thinking about what life was like before the catastrophe. When he spoke in chapter 29, verse 20, of of the bow, it spoke of strength, provision, and protection. In that culture, when you have a bow, you have the ability to hunt and provide and protect. 
So when he uses that picture, because he has loosed my bowstring, the image is of a bow that has been unstrung. And an unstrung bow has no value. It's put on the shelf. It's set aside. It's an idiomatic expression of no protection, no provision, no help. In verse 12, it says, at my right hand, the rabble arises. They push my feet. That means they trip me up and they raise against me their ways of destruction. William MacDonald says, quote, these dregs of humanity who now treat Job with utter contempt. Notice the phrase descriptive of their scorn, taunting, song. I am their byword. They abhor me. They spit in my face. They push away my feet, trip him. They break up or block my path. It goes on and on. Job's honor, Job's prosperity, Job's dignity, Job's respect, gone, gone. Job describes people who have lost all sense of compassion and show utter contempt. You might have heard in the news of, of bullies and ruffians and wicked people who prey on the most vulnerable or the homeless. You've probably all heard stories how people will find a homeless person and beat them up or pour gasoline and set them on fire. In other words, what kind of wicked, what kind of stupid, what kind of horrible person would find someone who's hurt and broken and empty and in the worst situation in their life and make their situation worse. What kind of a person do you have to be to do that? They break up my path. They promote my calamity, he writes. They have no helper. They come as broad breakers under the ruinous storm. They roll along. Terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my honor as the wind and my prosperity has passed like a cloud. Job used to be an authority. Job used to have power. And by the way, you can have position and you can have wealth. And position and wealth and authority can give you a certain respect. But in the end, real respect only comes from what you actually do in, your real, in the real world in which you live. The way you really live your life. And so Job describes a world where respect has disappeared. Job feels terrified. That means he doesn't feel safe anymore. He doesn't feel secure. When I lived in Albuquerque, my neighbor had one of the most unfortunate incidents that can happen to a person. He was robbed and he was beaten. A person held him up, robbed him and beat him and he never got over it. He lived in constant fear. He lived in constant terror. He was a brilliant man who worked at one of the local government labs. He had an earned PhD, but he lived in constant fear and terror because he was placed in a, in a position of vulnerability and his whole world shattered and it began to unravel. He could no longer relate to his wife. He could no longer relate to his children. He could no longer relate to his coworkers. And things got worse and worse. And six months after the incident, we found him on a desert trail where he had taken a gun and he put it to his head and he pulled the trigger and he killed himself. For some people, when your world disappears, when it unravels, when it becomes so tenuous, when it becomes so difficult, people find it hard to hold on. And you know, we sometimes forget that there are strong warnings in the Bible about mocking God and also about mocking God's people. There are strong warnings in the Bible 
when we make fun of the poor, when we make fun of those people who are in the worst circumstances of life, we run a terrible risk when we mock the helpless and the needy. Peter warns in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? In the book of Proverbs, we read in chapter 17, verse 5, Whoever mocks the poor reproaches his maker, and he that is glad at calamities shall not go unpunished. It's the proverb writer's way of saying, don't you understand that when you mock the poor, you're making fun of people who are made in the image and the likeness of God. He's reaffirming, reiterating the reality of the value of human of human beings, the dignity of man and the dignity of what it means to be a human being. In Proverbs 30 verse 7, it says, the eye that mocks at his father and despises to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out and the young eagles shall eat it in Proverbs 30, 17. So here's this image that the writer of Proverbs gives of people who mock their mother or mock their father of this horrible calamity, envisioning a time when your body is on the side of the road and birds are, are, are pecking out your eyes out of your dead carcass. So as you can imagine, the Bible has some pretty strong words to say about people who take advantage of people who are hurt, who are poor, who are needy, who are in difficulty. And so he says, I have no respect. But then he says, I have no blessing. Look at verse 16. He says, and now my soul is poured out because of my plight. The days of affliction take hold of me. My bones are pierced in me at night and my gnawing pains like take no rest. By great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire and ashes. I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you regard me, but you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride on it. You spoil my success, for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. In the life before the disaster, he was blessed. In the life after the disaster, he says, there's no room for blessing in my life anymore. When he says, and now my soul is poured out because of my plight, he describes a mental, emotional, and physical deterioration. He likens his soul like a pitcher of water poured out. And that picture of drained, we all know that picture. I feel mentally, emotionally, physically spent. That's what Job is saying. In my mind and in my heart and in my body, it feels like I don't have any strength whatsoever. He draws attention that his condition is weak and he is afflicted. It becomes very much like the picture that David draws in the book of Psalms, in that very, very interesting passage of scripture in Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, um, verse 14 and 15, David writes, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked encircle me. And of course, the messianic prophecy. They pierced my hands and my feet. Most scholars see in verse 20, or Psalm 22 this image of a man who's surrounded by mockers and scoffers. And Job has a tiny taste of that mocking, that scoffing, that isolation, that rejection. I don't know if you've ever experienced 
pain. I'm not talking about a superficial pain where you accidentally cut yourself or you might step on a nail for a moment, but real pain, like you've been stabbed or you've been shot or you've had, been in a car accident and you've had your bones broken in your body. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where it was so debilitating, so difficult, that every moment of every day was excruciating pain. You woke up in pain. You continued in pain. You took pain medication, but, the, but it didn't help. You did this and you did that and nothing helped. You went to bed and you couldn't sleep because the pain kept you up at night. And Job gives us a picture of such pain, excruciating pain, unrelenting pain, And the point becomes in part that Job is dying. And as he's dying, he's he's awake. The day comes. The night follows. He's racked by pain. And in that racking moment, he hears the voice of his tormentors. He hears the insults. They keep running through his mind. They won't go away. That's what he means. My bones are pierced in the night. My gnawing pain takes no rest. Earlier this week, I talked with a woman who's in a rehabilitation center. She has a physical disability where she's in constant pain every moment of every day. And then she became addicted to painkillers. And as she became addicted to painkillers, her life went on a downward spiral and it became worse and worse and worse till she find her her addiction was so profound that she wound up robbing a pharmacy. Not just one pharmacy, not just two pharmacies, but three pharmacies. Because she was mentally and emotionally driven by the pain. Her whole life was one series of pain after pain after pain. And so when Job says in verse 18, by great force, my garment is disfigured. You know what I suggest that he's talking about? I don't know if you've ever been in those crazy little hospital robes where you're wearing those awful things and they, you know, there's nothing back here. And you are just in a constant state of absolute panic that people are going to see your private parts. And you're living in this constant position of shame and difficulty. And you're in constant pain. And you're tossing and you're turning and you're tossing and you're turning. And your clothes start to crimp up and they start to knot in different directions. By great force, my garment is disfigured. He's describing, he's tossing and turning. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. Job's describing the terrible effects of his suffering, the physical condition, and then he likens it by the collar. He he likens his suffering as if someone has grabbed him by the throat and begins crushing his larynx and begins crushing his throat. There's this powerful force that has grabbed a hold of him, that's binding him, that's choking him. And look at verse 19. He's cast me into the mire, and I've become like dust and ashes. The overall picture is Job is giving you a picture. I feel, here, here's what Job is saying I feel like God. Yes, he's, he's blaming God for his suffering. He feels like God has grabbed him by the throat and then picked him up by the throat and dropped him in the mud and then ground him into the mud. But mud is too sterile. I think we would have a better picture if we thought of a sewer, an open sewer, where all of the filth and sewage flows into it. He feels like he's been tossed into the mire. Think sewage. And I have become like dust and ashes. Let me ask you a question. Has it been your experience that people in pain sometimes complain? 
Yes or no? Yeah. And we can do one of two things. We can go, wow, I can't blame them. When you think of the difficulty, when you think of the circumstances, when you think of the raw emotion and the pain. And Job blames God. By the way, do people in pain sometimes complain and do they sometimes blame God? What do you think the answer to that is? I think the answer is yes. If you've ever been in a prison, you don't have to listen very long till you hear someone crying out, why did you do this to me? God, why have you put me here? God, why is this happening to me? God, I don't understand. How am I supposed to understand what's going on? What's interesting to me is Satan is the source of Job's suffering. God isn't the person who's hurt Job. By the way, let me ask you a couple of quick theological questions. Does the Bible teach that God is sovereign? What do you think the answer to that is? The answer is yes. Is God in control of everything? The sun comes up, the sun comes down, the planet turns on its axis, it revolves around the sun, the sun in our solar system is rotating in a galaxy, this galaxy is spinning in a gigantic universe, everything that is happening in the universe clearly, fundamentally belongs to God, God is sovereign, but does the Bible teach that God is the source of suffering? And the answer is no, 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 no. Clearly, God allows people to suffer. The Bible teaches the Christian to expect suffering. The book of Job clearly teaches that some suffering can be caused by Satan in verses, chapters 1 and 2. In Luke chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38. I might just turn to Acts chapter 10, verse 38, real quick. I know, I didn't know I was going to do Bible drills tonight, but I guess I am. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says of the speech that is being given, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. The Bible says that Jesus has come to give us life and life more abundantly. That the devil comes to rob and kill and destroy. We know that ungodly human beings can be a source of suffering. We live in a fallen world. People, we live in a world that stands in opposition to God and stands in opposition to Christ and stands in opposition to the gospel. And clearly believers, even believers, can cause suffering when they act outside of God's will or make decisions based on their own fallen or carnal nature. Have you ever made a choice or a decision that hurt somebody that you loved? Yeah. And you would even characterize yourself as a Christian. Of course. But God is not the source of suffering. I heard the story of a man who's furious when his steak arrived too rare. Waiter, he barked. Didn't you hear me say, well done? I can't thank you enough, sir, replied the waiter. I hardly ever get a compliment. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you're laughing. Well done. The waiter's going, wow. You mean you're talking about the steak? I thought you were giving me a compliment. Job says, I cry out to you, but you don't answer me. I stand up and you don't regard me, but you've become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. Think about what Job is saying. You hurt me. Think about what he's saying. 
I prayed to you and you didn't answer me. Job blames the strong hand of the Lord for his bitter circumstances. You lift me up to the wind and you cause me to ride on it. You spoil my success. Again, before we're, we're too hard on Job. Remember, 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 remember where he's come from. He's a good man. He's a decent man. He's an honest man. He's a righteous man. He's a man who loves the Lord and he's a person who worships the Lord. He's a person who cares for his children. And then all of a sudden, everything that he has is gone. His children are gone. His wealth is gone. And he doesn't have any kind of explanation in order to try and determine what's going on. How could things be so right, 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 and then become so wrong, wrong, wrong? Job has already said, I know that my Redeemer lives in chapter 19, verse 29, but look what it says in verse 23, for I know you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. It's his way of saying, I know that before this adventure is over, I'm going to be dead. He genuinely believes that this is going to kill him. Again, William MacDonald writes, quote, He is racked with pains. He is disfigured with agony. He is reduced to dust and ashes, and he's ready to die. God won't answer his prayers. He believes God cruelly opposes him, tosses him around, and is about to kill him. Unquote. He feels forsaken and mistreated by God. Now all of a sudden you begin to understand something. Something maybe that you've known for a very, very long time. Particularly if you've ever felt forsaken. Particularly if you've ever felt mistreated by God. Job's agony is expressed in the vivid images. Job feels like God has grabbed him by the neck in verse 18, thrown him into the mud in verse 19, cries out and prays, but there's no answer in verse 20. He stands before God. And, and now think about this. He stands before God, not a wicked, rebellious, disobedient person. He stands before God, a beloved follower and worshiper who's ignored. Job feels like God is cruel and that he's using his great power to oppress him and attack him beyond what anyone should have to suffer in verse 21. He feels like God has tossed him into a violent storm in order to destroy him in verse 22 and that God is sending him to his death. The fate of everyone who's ever born I know that that's not what you think about when you hear the news that someone is pregnant and they're going to get ready to have a baby. You don't think about when the baby is born that that baby is going to grow up and that baby is going to live and hopefully the baby's going to live a long life and, and the baby's going to have all kinds of different adventures and all kinds of things that will happen but, but the baby is going to grow old and the baby is going to die. Every single person, every single human being without exception who comes into this world will leave the world. And Job says, I have no help. In verse 24 and 25, it's, it's a difficult verse. It says, surely he would not stretch out his hand against a heap of ruins if they cry out when he destroys it. It's, an, again, an idiomatic expression. Surely he would not stretch out his hand against a heap of ruins. I guess here becomes part of the point. Who goes to a building that's been completely leveled or destroyed and then throws rocks at it and say, there, take that. Does it make, or, or who goes to a broken glass or a, a broken bottle? Who goes to anything that's broken and then decides to break it even more? So Job is in effect saying, why would anyone who is so hurt, so broken, so empty, 
and then continue to break and continue to smash and continue to hurt? How can God refrain from answering, Job is in effect saying. Surely he would not stretch out his hand against a heap of rooms if they cry out when he destroys it. One of two things, the he in verse 24 is either God or it's some other person. And again, if it's God, then Job is in effect saying, how can you refrain from answering when a human being is crying out, the, 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 the idea is even a person with a modest sense of compassion, with even a minuscule bit of sensitivity. How many of you could go out on the street and if there's a three-month-old baby at, at, at the bus stop on the seat, crying, crying with no one for, in, for, for miles around, what person wouldn't go and pick up the baby and comfort the baby? What person would leave a person lying on a road to die and just walk away and pretend like it's not happening? So what does this verse teach? Clearly, Job is heartbroken. He's stunned. He's disappointment, disappointed. He's, he can't comprehend how anyone could just simply walk by and not help him in his horrible circumstance. What Person, what wicked person would kick a person when they're so hurt and they're so broken? But here's his argument. That's, his, that's exactly what's happening to him. People go out of their way to torture him and ridicule him. And then he says, I'm not getting any help. Verse 25, have I not wept for him who was in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? This is Job's way of saying, look, remember chapter 29? I used to live in a world where if people needed help, I gave them help. People were in trouble, I helped them. People were in difficulty, you have compassion. Who is in trouble? Who is poor? Who is needy? Who is helpless? Who is down and out? And so what Job is basically saying, how could God not sympathize with him? We know in the New Testament, Jesus said, blessed, blessed, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, but Job believes that his cries for mercy have been ignored. His cries for help have gone unanswered. Again, William MacDonald says, his intense suffering is compounded by loneliness and rejection. His physical and emotional condition are appalling. Why would a righteous man like Job have to become the brother of jackals and the companion of ostriches, unquote? He feels betrayed. He had compassion on the broken. He had compassion on the hurt and the needy. He had compassion on people who were in the most difficult circumstance of their life. And so he's asking a question. The question he's asking is, why is there no compassion for me? And so again, when we read this, and we begin to understand not only the nature of God and the character of God, but the revelation of God in the New Testament, and we go, no, what kind of God is God? Is God merciful? Is he gracious? Is he kind? Does God love people and want to help them? And the truth is, as we think about these things and we think about what we are able to do as far as offering aid and comfort, of bearing one another's burdens, and now all of a sudden the New Testament starts like a neon light. Comfort one another, pray for one another, minister to one another, encourage one another, help one another. We bear one another's burdens. We pray and we ask God to empower us and strengthen us so that we can minister to people and meet needs. But Job says, I have no future. Look what it says in verse 26. But when I looked for good, evil came to me. And I waited for light, 
Then darkness came. Remember in Job chapter 29, verse 21, we read, Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. Now Job uses the exact same two Hebrew verbs used for, to wait. When, and when I looked for good, evil came to me. And when I waited, the Hebrew is yahal and kept silent. Hebrew, damam. When Job waited for the light, his disappointment with the darkness would not allow him to rest. The Hebrew damam, be still or be silent. The, the idea being be silent on the inside. When I looked for good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness. Here, darkness probably doesn't mean literal darkness, like the sun has gone and the lights are out. He's talking about the expectation that God is going to show up, that God is going to speak to him, that God is going to help him. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. Days of affliction comfort me or confront me. In other words, it's his way of saying when I think about the future, I'm disheartened and dismayed. He looks at the future. He sees darkness. No answers from God. He looks at the future and he says, he sees one more day of pain. Another day of difficulty. Another day of horror. He may be saying that he's longing for relief, but that he's not going to get any. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. In the 1960s, when I was a little, little kid, the monkey sang a song. I thought love was, was more or less a given thing, but the more I gave, the less I got. What's the use in trying? All you get is pain. And of course, Smash Mouth in the 90s brought it back. When I wanted sunshine, I got rain. What's the use in trying? All you get is pain. In verse 28, he says, I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I go about mourning. What, what is he grieving? What is he grieving, ladies and gentlemen? He's lost everything. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his children. He's lost his health. He is in a constant state of mourning, but not in the sun. Why? Because remember, he's covered with boils, open sores, and pus. When he goes out into the sun, the hot sun beats down on him, fries him. He is in mourning. His skin is blackened by disease, and he's covered with running sores. He avoids the sun because it's so harsh on his delicate, sensitive circumstances. He erects a shelter so he can try and keep the heat out of, out of the way. He cries out for help, any kind of salve, any kind of ointment, any kind of medicine to bring some sort of relief. And he says, I have no ministry. In verse 29, he says, I'm the brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. So he's alone, desolate. He compares himself to a wild animal. My skin grows black and falls from me. My bones burn with fever. What's interesting to me is scholars read this. And you know what they talk about? I wonder what kind of disease Job really had. I wonder if it was a skin disease. I, I wonder what kind of disease he was suffering from. I wonder what kind of thing that would bring about these symptoms. Instead of saying, my heart is broken over the reality that someone could be so hurt, so empty, so estranged, and no one wants to help. My harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. He's in the grip of grief. 
And the instruments that are described are instruments of joy and comfort. Remember in the Old Testament when David would play his harp, it was used to soothe the madness of Saul from whom he was running from. And when Jesus in the New Testament talks about people and their expectations, and they said, you know, you said of, of John the Baptist, you know, who, who basically ate beetles or locusts, if you will, and he walked around in a, in a camel skin, that he lived a life of, of, of discipline, and they made fun of him, and Jesus comes, and he laughs, and he, and he eats, and he, and he has fun, and people say, he's, he's too lax. And the idea being, the flute is an instrument of joy and celebration. But when Job hears the harp, when Job hears the flute, it's always tuned to the blues station. He doesn't hear joy. He always hears sadness. No wonder the Bible says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're to weep with those who weep and that we who are strong ought to bear with the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves, Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 1. When Paul asked the people of Corinth to restore the man who was excommunicated, he said, so that you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up in so much sorrow. He's basically saying, there comes a point where you have to help people. When Job cries out for help, he feels like he's ignored by God. He feels like he's ignored by men. And again, one of the things that I wanted to remind you of, because when you're in chapter 30, and chapter 42 seems so far away, you wonder, God, when are you going to show up? What are we going to do about this pain and suffering? Johnny Erickson Tata has a little pamphlet that's published by Rose entitled, When God, Doesn't, when God Seems Unjust. And she's a person who can certainly talk about pain and suffering. She was involved in a diving accident when she was only 18 years old and and she broke her neck. And she was paralyzed from the neck down. I've had her on my radio program several times. The last time we spoke, she said, Gino, can you believe it? It's been 43 years that I've been in this wheelchair. In her little pamphlet, When Life Isn't Fair, she writes about a study in Job. And she talks about all of the things that we've talked about. From chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, 10, 20, and now 30. We know that Job's property is gone. We know that his children are dead. We know that his health is ruined. Johnny Erickson Tata writes that it's not until the last five chapters of the book that Job, that God finally walks on the stage to answer the accusation. But Johnny is so kind, she uses the word challenges. The challenges of Job, she says. And when God finally shows up, what explanation does he offer for personal ruin and for the pain and the heartache? Johnny Erickson writes, not a word. God never sits Job down and offers him anything that resembles a plausible explanation for the pain and the suffering. Rather, God says, stand up, Job. I'm going to ask you a few questions and you answer me. And four of the next four chapters, God does nothing but describe his awesome majesty, his works in nature, invites Job to match them. God paints a vivid picture of the stars and space, the might of the ox, the majesty of the horse, and the way of the earth, and how it provides food for every living thing. Johnny's words. And then quotes Job 38, 21, for you were born before it was all created and you are so very experienced. In other words, God uses sarcasm. 
And clearly, Job never asked to know all the mysteries of the universe. He simply wanted to know why his children were dead and why his fortune disappeared and why his health dramatically and painfully disintegrated into such a terrible, utter helplessness and weakness. And finally, God asked the question that seems to drive the whole point home. Do you still want to argue with the Almighty or will you yield? Let me ask you a question and give you the answer. Are you going to discredit my justice and condemn me so that you can say that you're right? Johnny Erickson Tata then says these things. That it's a question that we ask over and over again. She offers three things to think about. That she's thought about. As she spends every day, every single day, in a wheelchair. Every single day, someone has to brush her teeth. Every single day, someone has to put her clothes on. Every single day, someone has to put them off. Every single day, someone has to put her in a bathtub and take her out of the tub. I at least got to get out of my bed on my own. I got to dress myself. Okay, I admit my wife picked out all my clothes. She writes, number one, we cannot demand answers from God for we cannot make God accountable to us. To insist on answers from God is to set oneself over him. She writes, number two, There is no imaginary courtroom in the sky where God must answer to something called fairness. God himself is the court. He invented fairness for who is like me and who can challenge me, it says in Jeremiah 49, 19. And then number three, God wants us to respond like Job. In chapter 42, verses five and six, Job comes to the conclusion, I heard about you before, but now I've seen you. And I loathe myself and repent in dust and ashes. Why am I telling you how the book is going to end? So that you'll stay with me. So that you'll stay with me one more week. So that you'll stay with me in chapter 31. So you'll stay with me in chapter 32. You know, I wish I could say that I've grown enough in Christ to no longer demand answers from God or to understand completely and fully and finally that God isn't accountable to me. I wish I could say that I never set myself over God or demand things from God, but it's not true. I wish I could say that I'm an expert on justice and I'm an expert on equity. It's funny, on my radio program, I hear the little voice say, And now here comes Gino Geraci, Bible expert, and I laugh. I laugh because of all of the things that I don't know or understand. I wish I could say that I know about suffering, and I know about pain, and I know about compassion, but it's not true. At least not in the way that Job knows about it, at least not in the way that Johnny Erickson Tata knows about it, at least not in the way that Jesus knows about it. Do you think Jesus has a good handle on suffering? Do you think he has a good handle on compassion? And do you think he knows more about justice than anyone else in the universe? I think, it, I think that's right. We look for equity and justice and fairness in a world that's broken and filled with sin, but the truth is, it's not a fair world. Horrible and terrible things happen every single day, and we have no good explanation for it. And the truth is that God in His grace And God in his mercy and God in his love has given us a savior. And if we're ever going to understand suffering, if we're going to ever understand compassion, if we're going to ever understand justice, we're going to have to take our cue from Jesus, aren't we? 
But we're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for these men and women. Lord, I've done everything that I know teaching through the book of Jeremiah, thinking through the book of Isaiah, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, teaching through this book of Job to make them go away, but they keep coming back. And for that reason, Lord, I pray that you would reward them, that you would bless them, that you would encourage them, that you would equip them. Lord, I pray that you would expand their vision. Lord, I pray that the simple little nuggets that we get from time to time, like God isn't accountable to me, I'm accountable to him. That, Lord, we would really believe that and that we would live our lives as if that's true. Lord, we pray that instead of looking all the time for answers, that every once in a while we would look for the answer. That we would look to the Lord. That we would look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And that we would be content with Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. We're, okay, let's stand.